Perspective is a funny thing, right? Two people can look at the exact same image and see two completely different things. Raise your hand if you see the vase. Raise your hand if you see two people's faces. All right? Young woman, old woman. So the mouth of the old woman, the nose, or up here, the, uh, the feather, the, the little nose of the young woman. Who here sees the woman's face? Who here sees the jazz musician? Saxophone. You don't see it? All right. Bad image. Is this a rabbit? Or is this a duck? There's a rabbit, and there's a duck. <coughs> rabbit here, back here, or it's the Dutch beak. We all have a perspective. Our lives, our experiences, who we are, shapes how we see and understand everything. Everybody sees the same thing just a little bit differently. We all have a perspective. The news media has a perspective, right? Fox News leans to the right, MSNBC leans to the left. And that's fine. The problem is when we ignore the perspective, when we pretend like we don't have one, when we begin to ignore it. The Bible has a perspective, right? It's God's perspective. But it's more than that. Right? The Bible was inspired by God, but it was written down by human beings. Human beings that were bound to a context, to a time, and to a place. It was written, there are stories and letters and collections written for a purpose to people. Okay? So who is it written to? What would you say the central, like, main event, the central event in all of Scripture is. I'll open that up for you. I'm sorry? Crucifixion. crucifixion, that's a good one. That's, you can definitely see that everything centering around the cross. Resurrection. Resurrection. I see. Resurrection, rescue. rescue. Okay, that sounds like a theme. Uh, resurrection, alright, that, that, that's pretty good. Jesus dies, Jesus comes back to life. I'm going to make another suggestion. Um... <laughs> I would suggest to you that maybe not the most important for, our, for us, but maybe the central event that the rest of Scripture kind of centers around is the Babylonian captivity. I think you can look in the Old Testament and you can see pretty much everything either leads up to it or is trying to figure out what to do after the fact, trying to make sense of it. And, and even the context in the New Testament that, that Jesus comes into, you've got these Jews... They're, they're a captured people. They're, they're, they're still, you know, they, they continue to be conquered. They're oppressed. And he's entering into that same context. You know, we, we're back. We've rebuilt the temple. But does God live in the temple? We don't know. Everything is kind of centered around this, this idea of this exile, right? See, in the ancient world, every nation, every tribe had their own gods. The more powerful the nation, the more powerful the god, 
That was basically how that worked. So the God of the Jews is supposed to be the most powerful creator of everything, right? And yet, the Jews were not the most powerful people. They had seen their cities destroyed, their fields burnt, their leaders executed, the temple to their God ransacked, and now they find themselves living as slaves in a foreign land. And it is around this time that we figure historically that what we know as the Old Testament was compiled into this form, or begun to be compiled into this form. Now the stories are old, they've been passed down through generations, maybe oral, maybe written tradition, but but the the compilation of them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this happens at this time when they're trying to figure out this weird, like, who are they if they're captured? Who was the Bible written to? The Bible was written to an oppressed people. It addresses the question of how the children of the Almighty God are slaves in a foreign land. And that's my first point this morning, that the Bible was written to an oppressed people. And here's my second point. If, like me, you are white, American, Protestant, Christian, heterosexual, cisgendered, you're not part of an oppressed people. Even more so if you're male, again, like me. Um, Which means we're not the target audience of the Bible. That struck me the other day as I was reading, I don't even remember what I was reading in the Bible, but I was reading something and it was like, this isn't written to me. And it struck me very weird. What happens when you read this book that was written to an oppressed people, would you read it the way we teach you to read it? As if it were written to you. Right? This is your guide. This is your book to guide your life on. Well, things get weird. And it shows up in a couple of different ways. How many people here are uncomfortable with the violence in the Old Testament? That's because this story is not for you. Right? I'm there with you. I'm reading Exodus, reading about all the plagues, and I'm thinking, oh, those poor Egyptians. Oh, oh, well, Pharaoh didn't, I mean, God hardened his heart. He shouldn't have. We're sympathizing with the bad guys. Maybe, maybe it's not for us. Have you ever seen a black stand-up comedian? Were you made uncomfortable by any of the jokes? It's the same thing. I'll show you this one. Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, you are destined for destruction. Happy are those who pay, for, pay you back for how you treated us, so you will no longer walk so proud. Happy are those who dash your children against the rocks, so you will know how it feels. I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. The other night I watched a Chris Rock stand-up special and his opening bit was I think the police should kill more white kids to try to even the score out. I didn't much care for that one either. It's the same thing. The joke was not for me. This psalm is not for me. 
these stories are not targeted at us. There's another way um, that we can misread this. It goes like this. All right, you're reading the Bible, and you read, Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. And you're like, okay. And then you keep reading, and you see that the early Christians, they're persecuted, and they're persecuted because of their beliefs. And you think, I'm a Christian. Am I being persecuted? And you look for it. And you find it. Let me tell you a story. In our house, on Saturdays, sometimes, we'll let Henry play video games. It usually happens in the afternoon around 4. Now, there are some Saturdays when 4 o'clock rolls around, and for whatever reason, we decide we're not going to let him do it that day. Maybe it's something from his behavior. Maybe it's just we had so much else going on, there's not really time for it. It doesn't really matter. Is he being persecuted? <laughs> no. Does he feel like he's being persecuted? Yes. What happened was he had a privilege and that privilege went away. You know, they used to say prayers before football games. Now they don't. We used to have carvings of the Ten Commandments in our courthouses. Now we don't. Time was, people would say, Merry Christmas. Although I heard that came back last year. (laughs) That's not persecution. And to treat that like persecution, it dishonors those that are actually persecuted. What about this one? The Christian business owner wants to refuse service to a gay couple. Someone is being persecuted here, but it's not the Christian business owner. All right. Point one, the Bible is written to an oppressed people. Point number two, we are not the oppressed people. It's even worse. (laughs) If you're white, Protestant, Christian, we're the oppressors. Now, I personally have never owned any slaves. I have never deliberately set out to oppress other people. I've never participated in the genocide of nations. But I have benefited from that. And odds are, well, I mean, if you're white, like me, you have to. Here we are this morning, a predominantly white church, yeah, meeting in a rec center in a historically black neighborhood. How many people here knew that, that this was a historically black neighborhood? Very good. Very good. Hamilton Park was created to be a safe place for the upperly mobile black family that could be out of sight to the white citizens. I said safe. Safe from what? The bombings, of course. You know about the bombings, right? From 1929 to 1951, um, homes that were owned by black families that were in white neighborhoods in South Dallas were bombed. That was here in this city. I got another one for you. This one hits really close to home for me. In 1966, the State Fair of Texas commissions a report um, to provide planning principles for the future of the fair. 
In it, the study discovered that there was an intense emotional discomfort in middle-class white residents of Dallas concerning the areas surrounding Fair Park. And so here was their recommendation. The solution for all these conflicts, at least in terms of Fair Park's location, is simple. All that is required is to eliminate the problem from sight. If the poor Negroes in their shacks cannot be seen, all that guilt feeling revealed above will disappear, or at least be removed from primary consideration. And the question was posed, if the land around Fair Park were bought up and turned into paved, lighted, fenced parking lots, would that solve the problem? And guess what? Dallas said yes, and that's what they did. That's what we did. Through eminent domain, the homes and the businesses of the families that lived around Fair Park, mostly black, were seized and bulldozed and paved and fenced. And now there's this big moat of parking lots that surrounds Fair Park and keeps it separate from its neighborhood. Exodus 25 says that I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. I don't own slaves. I've never killed Native Americans. I'm not deliberately racist. I didn't do any of these things. Neither did my parents. I go back three or four generations from that. I don't know. The odds aren't very good. See, we white people are really good at ignoring sin and deflecting the blame. One of the most effective tactics employed by the white American Protestant Christian is to take our religion and individualize it. See, I've been saying all morning that the Bible was written to a people. It's a collective term, but it's a singular noun. God doesn't speak to groups of individuals. He speaks to his people. His people are blessed together. They are punished together. Together they're exiled, together they return. Collectively they sin, collectively they repent. They couldn't get away with it. It's not my fault, I didn't do it. And neither can we. We white people. I've used that phrase more today than I think I've ever used in my entire life. White people. Why is that? You know, the only groups that talk about white people are non-white people and white supremacists. And the rest of us, we just try to ignore it. We try to pretend like we don't have a race. We don't have an ethnicity. We're just normal. See, the problems happen when we ignore our perspective. We don't pay attention to it. Why should we let white supremacists, or people of color for that matter, tell our story? We need to own our identity as white people. We need to talk about what it means to be white. The good and the bad, because there is both. Being white doesn't make you bad. Being white doesn't make you good. But it, 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 color, it, colors, it colors your perspective. <laughs> we like to say that race isn't real. That it's just a social construct. Well, guess who constructed it? White people. And we need to own that. And while there's probably nothing to it biologically... Race is a real thing sociologically today. And we need to understand our place in it. White people have a dark past. And it needs to be examined in the light of day. 
how much of our society was built on the backs of slave labor. How much of the land that we own was taken from someone else. How many of these acts were done in the name of Jesus? We need to confess. We need to repent. We need to know who we are and then maybe we can start to read the Bible the right way. All right. So how can we read this book? There's one way. We can, we can read the Bible and by treating it from a more spiritual perspective. This is probably how most white people already read Scripture. Right? We're oppressed because of the general human condition. We live in a fallen world. We're all sinful. We have to deal with sickness and death and broken relationships. And that's all real and that's all true. And God does speak into that in a very powerful way in Scripture. He is active in that. But to only read Scripture that way denies the reality and the tangible nature of the story that it tells. And so I want to offer another way for us to look at it today as white people. And to do that, we're going to walk through a couple of passages real quickly here um, as an example. Um, the first one, this is Matthew 8, 5 through 13. It's, it's, it's a relatively familiar story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following, truly, I tell you, I have, found, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But when the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And the servant was healed at that moment. <clears throat> I got a question for you. When you're picturing that story in your head right now, what color was Jesus' skin and the skin of the crowd around him? Was it white? Maybe it looks something like this. If it was, don't feel too bad. You're in good company. I did an image search for Jesus and the centurion and all the results came up white. <laughs> Let me modernize the story a little bit and retell it. Let's all say that Jesus is black. Let's make his followers black. In fact, let's say the whole crowd is black, and let's put them in Ferguson, Missouri. And let's have a white police officer be the one that comes into the crowd. Maybe it looks like this. And he walks up to Jesus in that crowd and says, my friend is at home. He's paralyzed in a lot of pain. And Jesus, being the cool guy that he is, says, all right, let's go to your place. And the cop's like, no, 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 that's not, not, not necessary. You don't have to do that. But I know how this works. I have people that work for me. I give an order, and I know that it's done. I figure it's the same way with you. Just give the word. And Jesus is blown away by this. And he tells the crowd that in the end, when all things are taken care of and the big feast is happening, 
that guys like this are going to be invited to the table. And he turns to the cop and he says, go home. Your friend is healed. And he was. What does the story say to you as a white person this morning? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's exactly what that would have been. No. No, the white guy was the one that needed saving. Let's do one more. This is Acts chapter 16. They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged him into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. And they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them very carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. 
Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourselves. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial. Even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quickly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. What color were Paul and Silas? And if he said white, it's okay. It takes some time to get used to. Let's retell the story real quickly. This time, let's, let's put this in an American town around the turn of the century. And let's make sure that Paul and Silas are black. And they get drug up to the courthouse steps. These men are, there's the word, and they're throwing our city into an uproar. They're corrupting our good moral standing. They, they get stripped, they get beaten, they get whipped, and they get thrown in jail. Middle of the night, ground shakes, jail opens, the warden panics, but everyone's still there. Paul and Silas get invited into his house. His family's baptized. The next day, they're free to go. Except there's an epilogue. They don't want to go. They want justice. You can't just treat us like this and then pretend like it didn't happen. What are they like to be the jailer in that situation? The jailer has just had his life changed, but he still works for the Roman government. And I'm sure he would just as much like for them to kind of go away and pretend like that whole thing didn't happen as he would to deal with it. How do you deal with that? Do you think he joined the church in Philippi where he lived? How many of those people had he put in jail before? How many of those people would he be asked to put in jail later? What does this story say to you this morning as a white person? It's black, it, it really 
uh, I saw Donald on the way up here about, about some of those constructs. Um, I grew up in the 60s, and while my father was not a racist, there was some, he actually, actually preached to black churches and things like that, but there was still an understanding that was also white, and it really is very uncomfortable. Uh, slap in the face that, uh, that we got to learn to deal with. Uh, I'm still struggling to deal with it. Just in what is the answer coming from a white perspective mm-hmm. that is not making it all about me yet. Because that's what it ends up becoming. It's that, oh, I need to change, and then it becomes all about me again. You know? And it's all about my white perspective, uh-huh. as opposed to really being able and listening to another perspective. Yeah. Thank you, Daryl. Ted, I'm, I'm struck by how quickly I want to move to spaces. That I want to, everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Let's, we're, we're fine. And um, uh, I'm really, really struck by the observation around uh, Paul. Silas go, no, this isn't okay. Like, they can escort us out. Like, if, if I'm the jailer, um, I've just thought, okay, I'm going to die, but now I'm okay. Like, the anxiety of the chaos from Paul and Silas being escorted out, or as a, as a white person, the, the um, dealing with um, the, uh, the conflict that comes around issues of race, I want to move to stasis as quickly as I can so I'm not uncomfortable. I'm really struck by that. That's a really interesting point. I have, um, I do uh, racial justice work in Dallas, and I have several friends that have talked about this, and um, I have lunch with one of my black friends, and she was asking me um, what my favorite conversations were, like, in the 90s, around, like, the race riots in L.A. and, like, uh, the gay teaching trial. And I was like, uh, what are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. we didn't, we didn't talk about it. Like, because they, people of color, live with that tension all the time. And so I think it, as white people, it is. It's hard for us to live in that tension because uh, we don't have, we can, we can back out of it and go back to Facebook. Like, I'm just not, I'm going to turn my TV off, I'm not going to go on Facebook, I'm not going to pay attention to it. But um, people of color don't just You're able to zoom in and zoom out. Mm-hmm. So I offer the zoom out, out to say that uh, we are. This is all relevant and important. I'm on college campuses and media, blah, blah, blah. I'm glad you brought that. I'm genuinely glad, but I want to zoom way out to say that we are all humans. There are people, there are, di- there are children dying of diarrhea today because they can't get water. There's a humanness. And there is the, I mean, the thing that comes up in my thinking in my journal sometimes is that we are, the, we, we are the human family. Let's remember that. Let's also remember that we are the body of Christ. That's all these things. We're going to get together and quit squabbling and be stupid and prejudiced and blah, 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 all the time and come together and get the job done, including, like you said, you know, when I was, when I was naked, you clothed me. How do you think? Then you visit me, you know. Let's get with that instead of trying to untangle all these racial squabbles. 
I mean, just FYI, two days a week on Tuesday and Thursday, I go to a black church. I'm the only white person there. Those people are so loving and so caring and so sweet and so gracious to me. It's just crazy. They have soul, they have care, they have love. It's staggering. And I don't find white churches too. Uh, I've always got a little about that. But whatever it is, it points to choices. And unlike any other white person, it's like, I don't know about it, it's just, it just is. And, uh, and I'm sure they all kind of stuff behind, beyond me, but around <coughs> me, they don't. And I know the pastors really, really well. The couple of the pastors team, the team of the D-Wells pastors. Um, so I just say, we are the body of Christ for God's sake. And we are the family of, we are the human family. Let's keep that at the top. Okay. Because we're never going to untangle all of this hatred, racial, I mean, the thing that just the last thought is that uh, uh, I, I watched um, Ken Burns, The West, and all the trees that we broke, all the trees the white folks broke. Mm-hmm. It tears my heart wide open. Mm-hmm. Wide open. I will never finish grieving that white folks broke their word hundreds of times to the folks. Hundreds of times. And that's why that we occupy Colorado and Wyoming, etc. And they don't. That breaks up. Thank you, John. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. Like, thinking about the whole, so like, what's the amount? I mean, what you're saying is true. But... Like in, in this example, the story we don't see Paul saying, "Yeah, it's okay that you mistreated me and uh, removed my privilege as a Roman citizen, because there's other people that are worse off better than me." Right? And so it's easy for us to say, oh, "We should zoom out and worry about people that really have it bad," um, but and it's not. I appreciate that. What I'm saying is we, we don't see that happening in the story. And I think that for me that's 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 challenging. Thank you, Ryan. All right, let me wrap up. I guess what I've been saying all morning is that I've got some bad news for you. <laughs> this book that you've grown up revering, the book that you've memorized passages from, that you turn to in times of crisis for wisdom and comfort. In this book, you are the villain through most of it. We white American Protestant Christians are the oppressors. We represent today the powers that have caused the people of God to cry out to him for rescue. And we have to own that. And we have to confess that. And we have to repent of that. We have to understand our perspective so that we can begin to come together. But I have good news too. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. For all of you were baptized into Christ. All who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, I might add, neither white nor black. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And that is good news. We do not deserve that. 
This doesn't let us off the hook. I am to God. To God, all of these things that separate us and that divide us have been removed. And that is the only way we can function together as a working body. But here in this world, I'm still a white guy. And I've got to deal with that. And I need to understand what that means to be a white guy in this world so that I can properly begin to undo some of the mess that white guys like me have caused. And if we want to be Christ's image in this world, if we want to be a way that God's kingdom can break into this world, we've got to see it. And when we can see it, then maybe we can do something about it.